Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stewart Center in Europe-Russia Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Russian Roulette. After a few weeks off for the month of August, we're back with our latest episode. And today I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Maria Snegovaya. Maria, thanks for joining us. Great to see you, Max. And our colleague and non-resident associate and professor at Catholic University and frequent uh, contributor to foreign affairs, Michael Kimmich. Michael, thanks for joining us. It's so nice to be with you both. So our plan today is to get everyone caught up on the events uh, of the summer when it comes to all things Russia and the war in Ukraine. And so let's jump right into it. I think one of the most newsworthy events of the summer was, of course, had to deal with Yevgeny Prigozhin, his uh, march toward Moscow, then his demise in, uh, in a plane over Russia. There's been many analysts trying to sort of understand what are the implications of what happened uh, with Prigozhin. Is this just sort of a, a one-off sort of rogue elite member of the regime that just, you know, went a little crazy and then had to be dealt with? So there's sort of nothing to see here. Or is this uh, sort of pretend some sort of broader structural trends inside of the Russian elite that has real implications for the Kremlin? Michael, maybe I'll start with you on what you sort of made of Prigozhin's demise and, and the whole affair. You know, in terms of what you're describing, Max, I think it's a little bit of both, uh, something of an eccentric one-off and the tolling of some kind of political bell for the Putin regime at the at the same time. So we can maybe go backwards and start with the things that haven't yet happened in Russia. It's not the case that the Putin regime was seriously destabilized uh, by this. It's not the case that the Putin regime is going to have a substantially more difficult time of prosecuting the war in Ukraine simply because of the absence uh, of Prigozhin or of the kind of mutiny that he mounted. And though it may be more difficult for the Kremlin to find somebody of Prigozhin's charisma and, and managerial skill to replace uh, him in, in, in Africa with the Wagner Group, that's probably doable for the Kremlin in the scheme of things. Uh, and it's not as if Russia is going to disappear from Africa or precipitously start losing the war because of the events of this summer. You know, Putin is, if anything... Kind of survivor. He does have a skill at muddling through, and that's a lot of what he's been forced to do over the course of the uh, of the summer. So that's not quite nothing to see here, but goes a little bit in that direction. But I think if we back up and take a careful view of the events of the 24th of June, and then of what I assume to be the kind of mafia-style killing of Prigozhin roughly two months later, we see the first person who has taken a major risk uh, to challenge Putin's authority. Maybe he wasn't intending to overthrow Putin, but to take your soldiers within a few hundred kilometers of Moscow is an enormous step. We saw that people did not rush to support, uh, Putin within the halls of the Kremlin. Uh, we saw that there was a degree of popular support for Pogosian on the ground. Uh, and, you know, I think that that has to be a very, very significant shift in Russian politics, if only on the psychological level. That which had seemed impregnable before the 24th of June, 2023, is pregnable, if that's a word. You know, these kinds of things can be done. And I don't think that Prigozhin's uh, assault on the Kremlin is going to be the last such uh, action that we see. So he's shown that it's possible. And the kind of killing of Prigozhin to conclude on that note, which again is, is my working assumption for what happened uh, to him in the plane, 
is the confirmation of a trend that's long been present in the Kremlin and in Putinism of a kind of mafia ethos. But it's hard to say that this is the sign of a self-confident, secure, forward-looking regime. Uh, and you know that, too, is a significant data point. I think one that's a part of a continuum. So it's not as if revolution is coming in the next few months. But the Putin who began the war uh, a year and a half ago, I think, is internally somewhat weaker than the Putin who's there at the moment. Yeah, Maria, over to you. I mean, to Michael's point, you know, what sort of stopped Prigozhin in, in the end turned out to be Prigozhin himself deciding to stop. It wasn't sort of any kind of, you know, Russian forces loyal to the Kremlin going to attack him. He eventually decided to stop. And yet Putin seems, uh, as Michael pointed out, as far as we can tell, can maybe assume that, that Putin then decided to, to kill Prigozhin. But I'm curious if what you think this does to the Russian elite. Did the Russian elite look at this and say, OK, order has been restored. We can't cross Putin because that we see what happens if you do the kind of mafia style characteristics of the regime, as Michael mentioned. Or does this sort of say, you know, Putin struck a deal with Prigozhin, it seemed, and then betrayed Prigozhin. And this is a really unstable leader that doesn't quite have a finger on in control of, of what's happening both on the ground in Ukraine and, and is sort of driving the country in the wrong direction. Yes, great discussion. Uh, thank you, Max. And I agree on most uh, points that Michael made in a lot of ways as we have discussed uh, uh, at the time when it was unraveling. Uh, it's possible that Prigozhin's mutiny um, was this sort of black swan for the Putin system, meaning that it is an event that by itself, random and unpredictable, uh, which itself created a sequence of the events that Prigozhin maybe did not necessarily intend. Having said that, uh, first of all, and this is why I do not fully agree um, with the conclusion that Prigozhin stopped by himself. The problem is there's a lot of the things that we don't know. Right? There must have been some sort of negotiations, unraveling between Prigozhin with or without active participation of uh, uh, Lukashenko, who certainly used that momentum to showcase his <laughs> importance for Vladimir Putin, whether that is true or not. Uh, but in the end, uh, um, first of all, Prigozhin never uh, targeted a regime change. Right, His point was to just demonstrate the unhappiness to the regime, to Putin. And also, in a lot of ways, he was scorned. So he acted in a lot of ways out of desperation, because if, if we remember, uh, what was happening is Prigozhin was, was sort of forced to act after he realized that effectively Wagner was going to be integrated by the Russian MOD. So from that perspective, a lot of that happened subsequently, while certainly, I agree, the demonstration effect of that is, a, is highly deleterious for the regime. But a lot of the things that happened may or may not need, uh, signal that it was Prigozhin's own decision to stop. Uh, certainly some concessions have been uh, made, certain agreements achieved, to which Prigozhin was apparently not very smart to, to, to trust. Uh, obviously, you do not trust Putin, and you, if you know anything about the system, uh, Putin will always uh, betray, especially in this situation. Going forward, and how much of risks and challenges does this represent to the system? Well, uh, first of all, uh, as we can see, uh, the Kremlin is quite aware of the possible long-term consequences, right? And over the last uh, two months, over the two months since the mutiny, we've seen the Kremlin very actively trying to contain da the damage, so to speak, by arresting other uh, unhappy radical representative of other radical groups, such as Trelkov Girkin, uh, who is currently jailed. We also uh, have seen the arrest of Suravikin, who allegedly has recently been released, but overall just a demonstration of some cleansing going on within the system, trying to take things under control. 
And of course, the um, murder of uh, Prigozhin, the alleged murder of Prigozhin itself, has certainly this demonstration effect in mind. It's done, I think, intentionally in a way that showcases the consequence, like the explosion, right? This is not a hidden, sudden disappearance of Prigozhin, right? And Putin certainly had no lack of tools to eliminate Prigozhin, but this particular chosen method uh, serves to show the consequences of, in a very demonstrative, demonstrative way, the consequences of what happens with such disobedience takes place. While I certainly hope that we do indeed see some unraveling of the system as exposed by Prigozhin, and especially the hollowness, right, of the Putin system that has been exposed during this march towards Moscow, when both the people, the society, and the elites were kind of left at his array, not knowing what to do. At the same time, we see that over the last two months, we have not witnessed a lot of actors willing to pick up on that momentum. In fact, uh, the Kremlin was free to act and to essentially arrest and threaten anybody who disagreed. So, so far, I'm not convinced uh, we're witnessing some major unraveling. We certainly are seeing uh, the Kremlin busy to quickly uh, contain the damage. And I think it's important to keep watching more closely what happens uh, internally, but I'm not convinced that this is like uh, the, frankly, the early signs of the undoing of the system. If anything, one last point that I'm going to make, Prigozhin for the Kremlin is quite unique on many levels, but especially in terms of the violence potential that he and his troops had. Along with Prigozhin, maybe Kadyrov, Kadyrov, right, is comparable in terms of the hold on violence that he has at his disposal, but he went an extra mile to showcase his loyalty to Putin in the aftermath of Prigozhin's mutiny. Uh, so we, if we were to watch for potential actors succeeding, acting on Prigozhin's legacy he left us with, to be honest, there's just not as many actors to speak of, and the Kremlin seems to be prepared now to kind of contain any possible uh, disagreements, at least in the forthcoming months. Unless something radical changes, like we see a radical deterioration of the economy or a pronounced success of Ukraine's counteroffensive, I would not necessarily envision major changes uh, in the near future. Thanks for that, Maria. I think, you know, the, my maybe one takeaway here on Prigozhin is that I think it does send a message to not just the Russian elite, but also to folks in the Russian military, that Putin is all about Putin, not necessarily about Russia, and that the actions that he's taken, you know, sort of decapitating probably the most functional aspect of the Russian military efforts in Ukraine, removing the most competent general that we've seen in this war on the Russian side, maintaining loyalists. Mark Aliotti noted that if there's a stab in the back narrative that sort of develops, you could see the Russian military saying, well, we were stabbed in the back by Putin, who undermined our ability to wage this war. So the one vessel of change within Russia that has the forces capable of perhaps uh, changing things is the Russian military. Uh, and, and I think, you know, in order for them to sort of switch or, or shift there would have to be some sort of uh, change on the battlefield. And that's where the Ukrainian counteroffensive is really critical. Great point, Max. Thank you very much for that. And uh, since uh, we kind of already started talking about the uh, counteroffensive, maybe you can share your thoughts about how you think it is uh, progressing and essentially also what in general it means for the West uh, response uh, and the West's role in this conflict going forward. 
Yeah, I think over the summer, look, the Ukrainian counteroffensive was not this sort of massive breakthrough that I think had been trumpeted by by many Western analysts, particularly retired former generals, that highlighted that Ukraine was going to now operate as if it was like a, the U.S. military with combined ob- arms operations and be able to, you know, make massive progress and then break the lines and break through. And then I think what you saw was some effort by U.S. officials to try to sort of cover their tracks to some degree to note that this wasn't their fault. Look, they provided the training, but Ukraine's not implementing the counteroffensive exactly the way they wanted them to. Uh, They're not deploying the forces the way they should. And I think there's probably some merit to some of the critiques. You know, there's whether Ukraine was overly focused on Bakhmut and not the South. Uh, And so you're starting to get this sort of finger pointing and then the Ukrainians sort of, I think, rightly respond and say, you don't know what you're talking about. This is attritional warfare that you actually haven't engaged in since, you know, a a very long time. Uh, At least this generation has not engaged of of military officers in the United States has not had to engage in this sort of warfare. That was sort of unpleasant spats that were going on. However, I think what the hope is now is that what you're starting to see is Ukraine make progress. They've created sort of a wedge uh, in in part of the front line in Zaporizhia heading south, have sort of maybe crossed the Surovikin line with, with a lot of these anti-tank defenses, crossed probably, hopefully, the main uh, minefields, and then we'll be able to now make faster progress. That remains to be seen. What's clear is that the Ukrainian forces have been attrited. They've had a lot of losses. The Russians have had a lot of losses. Both sides are, I think, really feeling the pain of this counteroffensive. Now, the question is, is who sort of relents first and whether the Ukrainians can continue for how long the Ukrainians continue and if they'll have to sort of call pause at a certain point, And if and when they do that, whether they will have gained enough to really uh, materially change the kind of status of the war. All this to be said we're kind of at a point where we don't really know how this how this counteroffensive will end. It's probably too soon to make a lot of judgments about it. And I will just say this time last year, you know, we were all sort of fretting that, oh, no, the, you know, Ukrainian forces were being attrited and grounded down by uh, Russian artillery advances in the Donbass. And it's not looking great. And then there's this big offensive both in the north and in Kherson. Now, situation is slightly is different. But I think the hope is that Ukraine could now has gone through the attritional phase of the counteroffensive and can start to make a greater gains. But it remains to be seen. Thanks a lot, Max. Very important thoughts. Michael, do you agree with Max? Do you have anything to add on this point? I do very much agree with what Max says in terms of keeping the imagination open. Uh, it's been a war of surprises from start to finish. You know, Max, you mentioned uh, September, October, but uh, of course, the first two months of the war are, are, are very, very surprising and, and, and point to a lot of the structural strengths that Ukraine has. And it has to be an important part of the narr- narrative. Obviously, wars go in multiple directions at the same time. And this has been a difficult phase on the Ukrainian side. But uh, I think that that's absolutely correct. In terms of generals and others going back and forth about wartime decisions, I'll just say, in my capacity as historian, that's that's the norm for war. And you have in many major conflicts, you can go back through U.S. history from, you know, sort of Vietnam back to the Second World War, uh, lots of disagreements and disputes. And, you know, one of the challenges of any military alliance is that you have different personalities and, and these kinds of stresses. So it's not pretty, but it's also not surprising. 
I very much think that we can kind of live with it. And in some ways, a debate about war aims is not a bad thing. You know, if that debate yields a couple of insights about how to go forward, then it's 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 in every respect, uh, it's in every respect worth having. I think the difficult aspect of the war at the moment, just making a modest prediction, which of course could be wrong, is that I don't think that Ukraine will reach Melitopol or will reach the Black Sea this fall. Again, you know, that that's a judgment that that events may prove inaccurate. And I think it's in that sense that we just have to conceptualize the war in the right way so that this is not an insurmountable problem. I don't think it's an insurmountable problem for Washington. I don't think that the White House was expecting rapid war-ending success in the next couple of weeks, even if the expectations were a bit higher from what's come to be on the battlefield. Uh, and I don't think in any sense Ukraine feels that if we don't succeed with the counteroffensive this fall, then we have to go to the table and immediately start negotiating. I think that what we have to manage with this war is a very high degree of commitment to it without an obvious theory of victory in the short to medium term. And we'll have to develop that theory of victory as circumstances permit over time. Now, that is agonizing in many respects, and that's a problem for our domestic political cultures in ways that I suspect we're going to get into in a moment. But it's not unusual for wars. I mean, wars can be very long-term affairs. And if your military goals are legitimate, as Ukraine's are 100% legitimate, then you have to develop the reservoirs and the resources of patients in addition to all the material resources. So I think that that's probably where we are at the moment. We just have to reconceptualize patients and what it means in this conflict. And that's probably a task for our domestic politics as much as it is for our planners and our strategists. Can I just add the very inevitable grain of salt, Eastern European grain of salt, to a fairly uh, positive vision coming from our American experts? I unfortunately, especially talking to my Eastern European colleagues, uh, see growing distress and anxiety on their side. There's two reasons for it. First of all, there's no official numbers, but there's some rumors reporting uh, really high losses incurred by uh, Ukraine uh, during this counteroffensive. The problem is while the arms are replenishable, when it comes to, you know, the manpower, uh, particularly given the relative right weight and sizes of Ukraine and Russia, for Ukraine that seems to be a particular issue. A side indication of that is just a recent decree that, by Zelensky that essentially allows to recruit into the army people who are sick with some lighter versions of tuberculosis and HIV. I do not think you issue such uh, orders from, a, you know, from a good place. And uh, with that in mind, Michael, to what you said, more than a year and a half into this war, I still do not sense a clear vision of victory, of what a victory for Ukraine would see would mean uh, coming from the West. Or maybe that's the messaging issue again. What is visible instead is that Ukraine is bleeding, it's incurring losses, right? It's doing really its best and highly and really exceeds many of the expectations, as you correctly pointed out. But it has to bag for weapons all the time, right? And once it has to bag, there's all this bureaucratic procedure ensures that eventually leads to provision of the weapons of Ukraine. And we should be really grateful to our to the Western colleagues for doing it. However, uh, it usually comes later than expected and in smaller quantities uh, than hoped. And this dynamic really starts creating this very negative spiral and uh, that I at least perceive on the side of my European colleagues who certainly express some concerns about what it's going to look like, especially if counteroffensive maybe is not as successful as originally planned. And Michael, you said, uh, you mentioned that you do not anticipate this pressure towards peace negotiations emerge, no matter how the counteroffensive end up, right? But that is not necessarily the, the opinion widely shared. I certainly have seen some people 
people who say that that's exactly what we'd like to see some point maybe in the fall of the winter especially if uh, maybe not all the expectations are met so i'd like to both you both if possible to comment on this dynamic because it feels extremely important you know i think that maria you raised many of the core uh, concerns at the present moment. So these are some of the most fundamentally important questions. This is just a normative judgment on my part about negotiations. I don't know if it's an exact answer to your question about whether or not they're likely to happen or to begin happening in the winter. I just see no prospect for a negotiated settlement to this conflict as long as Putin is in office and as long as Putin retains his core ambitions for, for Ukraine, such as they are. And I see everything, you know, Prigozhin didn't change this. And the events of the summer didn't change this. I think everything suggests that Putin still wishes to either fundamentally dismember the country or to, in some some sense, just, just destroy it. And I don't see what you can negotiate about if that's the case, uh, including a ceasefire or a sort of operational pause, which uh, I think could be very damaging to Ukraine's prospects. So to me, that seems sort of built in. And I don't think that the counteroffensive has changed that. I would be very surprised if there were much different thinking in Kiev about that. And I would also be surprised in a different sense, would be very curious, of course, Max, to get your judgment about this. I don't think that there's much different thinking in the Biden White House. Now, journalists can go out in search of space and daylight between Kiev and Washington, and I'm sure that there is some, uh, but I don't think that there's that much. And I don't think that there's real disagreement on this point. In terms of the manpower problems, those seem to me really very formidable. I don't personally have an answer. I don't know how Ukraine manages this. The you know sort of demographic situation since the onset of the war is something that any country would certainly struggle with, not to mention how to prosecute a war against an army like, like Russia. So that's, of course, a very formidable challenge. But if you'll forgive just a touch more American optimism in terms of glass half full arguments versus glass half empty arguments, and this speaks to the issue of the Western provision of, of aid to Ukraine, it's a steadily increasing arc. If you go from the beginning of the war, there are more and more commitments and there are commitments of ever more sophisticated weaponry. Now, it's very possible we may look back and say all of this was too slow and and to piecemeal and not well thought through enough, that may prove to be a correct retrospective judgment. But it's also possible that this is the foundation on which Ukrainian security will be built. It's just going to take a long time. And that's not really because X, Y, or Z was not done six months ago. It's going to take a long time because the nature of the challenge is so enormous. So if there's increasing commitment on the part of Ukraine's supporters to back Ukraine still 18 months into the war, and if you can project that arc forward, Ukraine is going to retain the motivation to fight, and the battlefield is uncertain. Uh, there will be better phases of the war for Ukraine. That doesn't amount to a theory of victory, I agree, but I think it's a theory of continuity, and it's a theory perhaps of augmentation, and it's probably under the circumstances the best that we have. I agree with Michael. And then one, maybe just a few points. One on mobilization. I mean, the Ukrainians definitely have manpower challenges, but so do the Russians. And the difference is for Ukraine that they're all in on this war, viewing it sort of existential to their survival. But Russia is not. And so there's big questions about whether Putin will do another mobilization, whether he'll pre prepare the groundwork for that. If Russia goes all in, then they gain a manpower advantage. At the current situation, it's not clear who is being attrited more, at least to my eyes. And you could argue that Ukraine in some ways may have somewhat of an advantage while Russia is, you know, Putin's sort of stuck because this isn't necessarily the most popular decision to, to invade another country without really preparing the public to do so. 
when it comes to security assistance, Maria, I, I, I guess I sort of disagree with the overriding narrative that the administration has been slow. I think in some ways, as someone who worked on this portfolio for a long time, the security assistance one, I mean, what, the, what has happened over the last year and a half is utterly astonishing. It hasn't really been done maybe since Vietnam, uh, that much level of assistance to another country. It's probably 20 times as much as we give Israel annually. And we've just found equipment and just shipped it over and violated all sorts of technology security rules and regulations about, you know, putting U.S. missiles on MiG-29 aircraft and things like that. And we've made all these exceptions and done all these things and broken all this bureaucratic China and devoted so many, you know, tremendous resources. Now, it's been in Ukraine's interest in supporters of Ukraine to never pat America on the back too much to say, you know, hey, great job. It's amazing what you've done. You always want to say, it's great, but what about the F-16s? What about the attackums? What about X, Y, and Z? And that's entirely sensible on the part of Ukraine and all the advocates of Ukraine. I do think, though, that there's been a lot of talk about we have 18 months until potentially a change in the administration, depending on what happens uh, in November of next year. However, I think we're now hitting a point where it's not really about the next administration. This administration has to grapple with this Congress to get renewed funding. And part of, I think, the hesitation on F-16s is they're just really expensive. And you look at the kind of runway for the administration and how its spend level of Ukraine assistance versus how much F-16s would take a chunk out of the aid that the administration has. And what you end up having, I think, by just the budgetary realities is an administration focused on the short term, this counteroffensive. What can, you know, what missiles do we need to get Ukraine now or artillery? And not the kind of longer term issues of how do we kind of build up the Ukrainian military over the long haul and start making those long term decisions. Mike Hoffman and Rob Lee, I think, did a very good critique of this. I think what they sort of miss is I don't think this is about strategy. I think this is just like if you give the administration the budget resources to have a long term strategy, they would have one. So, you know, if they could build the Ukrainian Air Force within the next five years. But from what money? And this is, I think, the fundamental dilemma right now is, you know, I was expecting out of Vilnius a big kind of Israel-style security commitment where the White House can say, on top of everything we're doing, we're going to commit to giving Ukraine, I don't know, $40 billion over the next eight years so that they can make long-term investments in their defense sending a message to Putin that this is a long-term commitment. The White House can't write that check because it's not sure it can cash it. And I think that's a dilemma that I sort of see going forward and that pretends to the kind of dilemma you point to, Maria, of maybe the Ukrainians aren't ready to negotiate and maybe the White House won't push them to negotiate because I don't think they will because that would be a political disaster. Zelensky just has to tell the New York Times that the White House is putting pressure on them to negotiate and it becomes a huge political issue. But... They could just say, well, you know, we, we don't have the money to sustain you the way we did. So, like, it's up to you about what you're going to decide to do. And that then puts Ukraine in a corner where they kind of then need to have a pause or figure things out. So that, I think, is where I sort of see the dilemma. And we have upcoming elections around Europe as well, um, which I think will be fine for Ukraine. But I think we're starting to hit that point where there could be some issues in, in providing in, in maintaining the support that we've been when doing for Ukraine. Thanks a lot, Max, all important and encouraging points. Since we have uh, the elections upcoming uh, in the West in uh, 2024, both in the United States and the EU, uh, which were quite uh, consequential 
including the elections to the European Parliament and the formation of a new European Commission. Michael, uh, maybe you could comment what uh, the counteroffensive uh, successes or lack of thereof mean in terms of money and uh, material for political leaders making decisions on continuing financial support for Kiev, especially in light of the elections that are coming. So I don't think that Europe is that much of a wild card. I think in terms of public perceptions, obviously there are gradations in Europe from south to north and from east to west, but I think that Europeans feel the threat fairly palpably, the threat that, that, that Russia represents, the threat of a war that Ukraine could lose. And uh, I think that that's going to keep Europe effectively where it is. Clearly, if Macron would start to lose power in France, you know, that would be uh, a concern. You have the AfD polling, you know, sort of regularly at 20 or a little bit above 20% in Germany. That's definitely a concern, but it's not as if the AfD is going to be in the governing coalition in Germany, perhaps ever, but certainly not, not anytime soon. And you also have the reality in Europe, which is worth emphasizing that in Sweden and in Italy, you had elections earlier that yielded, you know, what we might describe as far right parties and governing coalitions. And this has not changed the policy toward uh, Ukraine and the policy toward Russia. And even in Hungary, the kind of biggest European outlier, it's not as if they've been able to sort of stand in the way of too much. It's more that they use this to get concessions from the EU and, uh, you know, sort of Poland and the Baltics are not going to uh, are not going to change course. So I think it's very hard to imagine that because of electoral politics, Europe would go down a very different path. You know, obviously, we could devote many Russian roulette conversations to, you know, sort of Donald Trump and his prospects in 2024. I'll put it this way as a very general point, not about Trump, but about the Republican Party at the present moment. It's fairly schizophrenic. I think on the sort of not just official level, but sort of the presidential level, the sort of Republicans who vote in presidential elections, Republicans plus independents, I think that there's much more sympathy for Mitch McConnell in his view of the war than there is for uh, Trump in his view of the war. Trump might be popular for other reasons among Republicans, but I don't think his stances on Putin and the war make him especially popular. And that's important for the House of Representatives, for Congress, and it may be decisive in some ways for the 2024 election, given the candidates that could be there. And that's the kind of macro point. And I think for those people who are concerned about wavering support for Ukraine, that should be reassuring. But there's another point that you can add to that, which is just the kind of wildcard point. And it's bigger than Trump. If you look at the Republican debates of, I don't know, a week or a week and a half ago, actually, most of the candidates on stage had a kind of Mitch McConnell take on the war. But the ones who got the warm response from the room, the kind of energetic response from the room were DeSantis and Ramaswamy, who were the most Ukraine skeptical. So there is something in the party at large, especially in the primaries, that's tipping the GOP sort of away from support for Ukraine. And that's obviously a very, very important story to watch. You know, is that more important than the macro story? I'm not sure yet, but it's larger than just Trump. There's something in the Republican electorate that's not pro-Russian that I think would be go to that would go too far, but it's sort of very agnostic to the point of indifferent or even critical of Zelensky. Uh, in Ukraine. And it's it's just striking to me that this is not a localized dynamic of 2016 or 2020 or 2020, but there's a, a certain amount of momentum and energy to that, to that grassroots Republican conviction. 
If I may just jump in, Michael, you are giving hope here to the Russian oligarchs. Oleg Deripaska, among others, runs his Telegram channels really betting seriously and very strongly on Trump coming to power, winning over Biden and lifting all of the sanctions and uh, resettling a relationship with the, uh, with the West. So I'm sure he's listening and is very hopeful. Well, let me not give him too much hope. I actually think, just to make this a very quick footnote to what I said a moment ago, I think Trump's electoral prospects are very poor for many reasons. Most of them very much unconnected to Russia. But I do think that the shift in the Republican Party is probably of consequence and maybe of consequence for years, if not for decades to come. So it's 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 my my, my area of focus is a little bit less on Trump and on something that just seems to be changing in the American body politic. Yeah, indeed. And I, I mean, I think this is the point that I was sort of alluding to earlier, that the administration already has to grapple with this because of trying to get legislation funding for Ukraine through a House of Representatives that is controlled by the Republicans. And a good portion of the Republican Party is now very skeptical of additional Ukraine aid. So I think this is sort of now will play out practically in the coming months. And I think that there's probably not enough attention being played to that. But maybe we'll switch gears to maybe our final topic. Maria, the Russian economy has made a lot of news uh, over over the summer. There's been talk of, of labor shortages, high inflation, the ruble crashed. But yet this economy also looks sort of fairly stable. How do we make heads or tails of, of what is happening inside of Russia? Are sanctions having an impact? What's your sort of take on the current state of the Russian economy? Yes, thank you very much, Max. Certainly a very important uh, point. Uh, sanctions certainly work, and it's very visible, uh, right, in the sense that, yes, there are fewer goods available to Russians. Uh, certainly inflation is skyrocketing. Part of that is the effect of the sanctions. And in general, the mood in Russia that used to be quite positive about the economic prospects of the country over the last year actually has finally started to uh, decline uh, somewhat. Having said that, when it comes to the inflation, which is of particular concern indeed, even Putin recently made the statement uh, that the inflation is uh, kind of getting out, out of control and uh, we see uh, the central ba bank actually increasing uh, its rate and also just today there's a news that there will be some curdling of a very popular uh, mortgage um, discounts that are available to the Russian public, probably also in an effort to curdle inflation. Uh, but certainly the major contribution to this skyrocketing inflation comes not so much from the sanctions as uh, from uh, the Kremlin itself uh, that's been pumping up uh, its uh, defense sector since the start of the war at unprecedented level. About a third of GDP right now is one way or another is linked to uh, military production. Certainly a uh, dynamic that quite reminds us a lot uh, to the Russian watchers of the Soviet dynamic. And of course, it's not uh, healthy uh, for the economy. Certainly, a lot of bad things are coming for Russia in the long term, especially when and if um, the state is forced to sort of uh, curdle uh, the spending on uh, defense. However, uh, we also certainly see that this situation has created a lot of beneficiaries for the um, uh, country domestically. And this is important to understand when thinking of sustainability of these policies. Uh, since the start of the war, uh, the number of millionaires in dollars has increased uh, by at least 10%. In Russia, this is the data from one of the European banks, um, uh, UPS banks. 
In addition, we see that this dynamic is actually very beneficial for the poor groups within the Russian society who get paid a lot in order to go uh, to the war, and uh, this probably has influenced the decline in the poverty rate in Russia. Unfortunately, that means that the war has created this new dynamic where in which there's a lot of stakeholders for this current emerging uh, status quo. I also met, noticed that among my friends, who call themselves liberals, who at the start of the war escaped the country, but now increasingly kind of sensing this quote-unquote normalization, they go back to Russia and continue working for the sectors that are in one way or another directly or indirectly linked uh, to the state, claiming that essentially, what else are you supposed to do, right? You can't stay outside of the country indefinitely, etc., etc. These signs of normalization are quite concerning, especially given the fact that as Sergey Alexashenko says, in terms of pure economic costs, uh, how much the war costs to the Russian budget, in his opinion, the Kremlin can sustain this war indefinitely. It, and this is, of course, essentially the new reality, the new status quo in which the war has created a lot of beneficiaries. Of course, there's losers too, but many of them are among Putin's traditional opponents, the liberals, the independent journalists, etc., etc., who fled the country. So if anything, it's actually beneficial for Putin. There's less criticism inside of the country left. There's also all these stakeholders emerging. Add to that mix growing bulk of evidence that sanctions are also increasingly being circumvented by the Kremlin. Unfortunately, Russian businessmen are extremely creative in figuring out ways to get around, partly a legacy of the 1990s, where, for example, Elena Rybakova, a prominent economist, has recently published a very disturbing article, essentially showing that the export control sanctions are being circumvented left and right. Uh, we see that the import of semiconductors and critical components for Russian military at this point is as uh, large, as equal to what Russia has received before February 2022, if not larger, uh, despite all of the sanctions. Uh, similarly, uh, when it comes to the oil price cap, there is also growing evidence that Russia is able to sell its oil above uh, the existing oil price cap, which again means that it's probably getting more of the revenues into the budget than we are actually able to monitor. And again, so much for this effort to actually limit uh, Russian budget revenues, which in my opinion uh, is absolutely crucial to undermine Russia's ability to fight this war. There's also, like, to be fair, some good signs that are shown that maybe things are not as bad. In fact, uh, there's some evidence that Russia is failing to figure out the currency in, with which to trade <laughs> uh, with countries like Turkey or India. Those other countries are pushing trading in their own currencies, which, of course, is not beneficial for Russia because they're not fully convertible. Having said all of that, overall, this cannot be described as a radical success of Western sanctions. And uh, again, it seems like we have collected all of the low-hanging fruit, but the result is not, uh, real, is not that, that impressive. And there seems to be uh, probably a need for a major rethinking, once again, going back to where we started, Max, right, to what it is ultimately that we're trying to achieve here. We're definitely incurring a lot of losses and costs in the West, right? The Europe, for example, had to fully redesign uh, its import of energy uh, as a result of the war, and it's certainly very commendable. However, the result is not necessarily what we hope to achieve, and certainly, uh, again, this does not necessarily bode well for Ukraine going forward. 
Michael, I'm curious, any sort of final thoughts on, on Russian economy or how that's impacting Russian politics and what, what, what this all means? I will just want to maybe take one thread from what Maria said and, and sort of spin it out in terms of she used the word creativity in relation to Russian, you know, sort of businessmen, businesswomen from the 1990s. Um, you can also call it lack of principle. For sure. Yeah. Opportunism, cynicism, you know, sort of creativity, not entrepreneurial creativity, but a kind of somewhat darker creativity. I think that this point needs to be applied to one of the most significant strategic developments for Russia in the war in general, which is Russia's ability to think about the war globally. Uh, and I think that this has really come to our attention through Russia's assaults on Ukrainian grain supply and on shipping, not just in the Black Sea, but also through the Danube. And what Russia is doing here is obviously hurting Ukraine, that's clear, but also creating something of a global choke point with grain, where to kind of solve the issue of grain pricing, which is, uh, as Maria said a moment ago, in terms of the cost of the war, maybe felt largely outside of Europe, but very much a global cost of the war. To sort of deal with that problem, it's very difficult if you're a South Africa or an Egypt or a Colombia, not to deal with Russia somehow. You know, not that Russia is going to give bargains, but, you know, Russia is putting itself at the center of the of the problem. It's been a fairly creative in that regard. It's trying to structure uh, its economic policies around a certain global view of the war, whatever damages Ukraine, whatever helps Russia, whatever allows it to sustain the war. It's not a stunning success. You know, it's creating dependencies on China. It's not bringing efficiency to the Russian economy as such. Uh, and it's certainly not making normal Russians rich. So it's not a success in those terms. But in a narrow angle of vision, just at the ability of Russia to prosecute the war, it's creating something of a global underpinning for doing so. So we just need to reckon with that. We need to think about it. When we look at the war in Ukraine, not that anybody is exactly suggesting this, but it's definitely not just a Ukrainian or a European matter. It's very much a global matter. And there, Russia is making moves that we just want to take account of. And of course, think about in our own terms, material for another conversation, but think about our own terms in terms of how we respond strategically. It's not just a question of aiding Ukraine and getting Ukraine to succeed on the battlefield. It's something of a more global uh, conflict, I think, that's developing with Russia and needs to be you know, sort of pursued as such. So when I think of the Russian economy, I also think of this global aspect, and uh, I think it's a pretty big part of the war. If I may quickly jump in here, Michael, I think you're making a very important point here, and thank you for bringing it up, since one of the major developments uh, this summer was also the BRICS summit, and I think a lot of what you're saying here is applicable. So unfortunately, as, as I said, I do not think the assumptions are a failure. In fact, I commend the West for implementing so much, but we're also dealing with a highly unusual enemy, a target, so to speak, right? It's a huge economy, uh, which is largest land border, and again, as you said, opportunistic mindset, uh, which allows Russia to circumvent uh, many of the Western restrictions. And so in a lot of ways, we're kind of still figuring out what works and what doesn't. However, uh, as a result of this dynamic uh, over the last year and a half, I think the perception has been spreading worldwide, right, that Russia is managing, not too badly, despite all of the collective effort uh, by the West directed at it. And this is the point actually made by uh, Russian political scientist Kirill Rogov recently. I don't know if I fully subscribe to it, but I think it's worth paying attention uh, that he's saying that essentially from the countries that historically see themselves as in some subtle opposition to the West, right, or not fully happy with the West, like countries of the global South, this perception of uh, the Western failures, essentially lack of 
radical progress of containing Russia on the side of the Western uh, countries is creating this possibility for, to create this alternative like pool. Maybe it's not going to be looking like an alternative like balance of power, but we've seen at least uh, during the BRICS summit this emerging effort to develop an alternative platform which deliberately positions itself as an alternative to G7. And we have seen there's actually no lack of countries willing to join in. Again, so those countries that for one reason or another kind of want to challenge, quote-unquote, the Western hegemony. And unfortunately, uh, as you said, Michael, this general perception of uh, our, again, lack of breakthrough uh, when containing Russia may uh, give uh, these countries incentives to, again, maybe create this alternative uh, structure and develop some alternative world vision. Of course, we get into debate on the multipolarity here, but Russia is very likely to try and politicize uh, this opportunity, which it sees as emerging. Again, not such a positive uh, prospect for the future, but I think something that we certainly, certainly should be aware of. In some, Russia is fighting a failing war, but it's going to try to win a failing war. I think that's a, a great way to conclude it. I mean, they, uh, the we should never assume that the Russians will just, you know, especially under Vladimir Putin, will just sort of go quietly into the night and accept their kind of strategic defeat in this war, and that they will try to find ways to respond. And I think one of the things they're hitting at is, you know, one of the I think benefits of the kind of current Western-led international rules-based order is that countries can participate. And it's not as if Brazil has to choose whether it's going to trade with Europe or the United States. In fact, Europe is trying to do a trade agreement with Mercosur. So, you know, Brazil can sort of uh, poke a finger at the West while at the same time benefiting from the U.S. Navy, you know, patrolling the global sea lanes and preventing piracy and all these other things. So the kind of elements uh, exist of the Cold War with except the not really having to kind of pick a side. And, you know, I'm not sure we want to be pushing back to a place where it's, it's a with us or against us environment. I will, will however, however, recommend Michael Kimmage's uh, recent article with Hannah Note in Foreign Affairs, How Russia Globalized the War in Ukraine. It's, it's definitely worth a read. And maybe just one final thought on, on sanctions. I think we should also recognize the limitations of sanctions, but also go through the mental trick of saying, what if we did nothing economically? I mean, the notion that we would just like, you know, enable Western companies to just be, you know, flooding Russia with microelectronics that they'd be putting into missiles to, to hit Ukraine. And I think the way to probably view sanctions as a tax. And Russia is having to pay a sanctions tax. It can figure out ways around it. But all of these things are increasing costs, are making it harder. If something breaks, it's going to be more expensive. And so this is, you know, an economic war of attrition as well. And we shouldn't necessarily expect our, our opponent to just sort of crumble and evaporate because we take action. And we then have to continue to play that kind of aggressive whack-a-mole of increasingly tightening and enforcing sanctions and, and looking at how Russia's getting around it. And you're not going to write a news story about how sanctions are working. It's much easier to figure out ways sanctions aren't working. And and that's sort of the job of the press. So I, in some ways, I think... Where sanctions are having an impact, they've demonstrated a capacity in the past to really asphyxiate economies. They haven't really figured out how to change leadership behavior and decision making, but to sort of choke an economy, I think there's a, a better record of success. So we'll see. Russia's sort of wartime sugar high, I think, Maria, as you know, it is, is really can get it through this period. But, you know, we'll see if there's if if there's going to be real uh, problems ahead. 
But with that, I think Maria, you're not going to grind down our optimism. <laughs> no, no, never, never. Yeah. <laughs> you can you can try, but with that, I think that our sort of summer review. Uh, should hopefully have gotten people sort of back up to speed on where where we are in, in all things Russia in the war. There's obviously a lot of topics that we could hit on. We will do so in future episodes. As always, uh, I want to thank you, Michael and Maria, for joining us today. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our show and be sure to tune in to our sister podcast. It would be great if you could rate our podcast. And, and please, if you rate our podcast, give it five stars. And also, please subscribe to our sister podcast, The Eurofile, wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time on Russian Roulette. You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at csis.org.